All right, well, good morning, church. Uh, good to see you all this morning. Uh, we have entered the dog days of August, which, uh, side note, if you've never learned what the dog days of August mean, Pastor Dave actually took the time to look it up this week, and he found out that the dog days of August are, are called that because there is a constellation called the Greater Dog that actually turns out in summertime. So now you can leave today a lot smarter about the constellations. Well, uh, today, as Scott mentioned, we are coming to the end of part one of our series that we're calling The Story of Reality. And in part one, we've been looking at these ultimate questions. So we've been looking at the questions of origins and identity and meaning and morality. And they, they, what we said in week one is that it's a bit of a puzzle to come up with a worldview. Uh, a lot of us have puzzle pieces scattered all over the stage. We have to put them together to have a coherent whole, kind of like what we've been doing with this puzzle behind me. Well, today, we are coming to our last piece of the puzzle, a very crucial piece, and that is the question of destiny. What happens when I die? Now, next week, as you saw in the video, we're going to be launching into uh, part two, which is going to be a four-week series looking at cultural artifacts, movies, uh, and breaking down the worldview messages in each one. So you won't want to miss part two of the story of reality. Uh, that's coming up next week. But first, destiny. Does anybody know who this guy is? <clears throat> Some of you, any fans out there? Right, this is James Lipton. He is uh, uh, the host, or was the host for many years, of a really popular show on Bravo called Inside the Actors Studio. And Lipton, who was an acting teacher himself, would, would interview famous actors and actresses. They would come on the show and he would ask probing questions about movies they starred in and how they honed their craft. Um, but if you, if you were a fan of the show, you know that at the end of each show, there was one question he would ask everyone, one final question, and it was this. He said, if heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? If heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Now, this is an interesting question. Right? Notice he uses the word if, which means that there's a presumption that even if you didn't believe it, it could exist. And James Lipton would ask this question in every interview. Every actor or actress coming on the show knew it would be asked. And in fact, after a while, it kind of became a joke. They knew they had to have a funny quip to, uh, to make about the question when it was asked. Now, James Lipton uh, did a 2012 interview on CNN where he was asked this question himself. And what I didn't mention before is Lipton was a, was a staunch atheist. And so this is how he answered the question of if heaven exists, what would you want God to say to you? He, he said this. He said he would want God to say, you see, Jim, you were wrong. I exist, but you can come in anyway. Now, I start here because this is just, this is fascinating to me. Let me just summarize. James Lipton, uh, host of this very popular show inside the actor's studio, an atheist would always close his show talking to perhaps a lot of other atheists, and he would ask the question, if heaven exists, what would you like God to say to you when you arrive? And I, I, I find that so interesting for at least two reasons. First, James Lipton's answer assumes that God would let everybody in. And so I, I would ask him probably why, which probably follows from a certain worldview that he has. And then secondly, I would wonder why, why an atheist who doesn't believe God exists would care at all what he thinks. Well, I can suggest a reason 
right? I, I think all of us, whether you're a Christian or not, here today, listening at home, listening later on, um, we all are trying to answer this question of destiny. What happens when I die? None of us can escape the question. We're trying to make sense of this reality in our, in our world. Now, now, it's been said that there is two constants in life, death and taxes, okay? And we can all pray that taxes would go away. Some of you are praying that right now. Uh, but until Jesus returns, death will be with us. Everyone must cross by themselves into this great unknown, and so we naturally start to wonder, when the lights go out, is it for good? And the tension that we feel, even as we bring up a subject like this, is that we don't like death. In fact, I generally find there's two common reactions when people think about death. The first reaction is this, we ignore it. We ignore it. Many of us don't want to think or talk or acknowledge that death will come for us or the people that we love. And so we go about living as if death is not a part of our reality. Now, secondly, if you don't ignore it, some people are over here and they, they obsess over it. Some people obsess over, over death. Some of us have had an experience with death, uh, usually not our own, um, because we saw someone else die, or, and we now obsess over avoiding death. And so we, we do more doctor's visits. We do more early screenings. We, we try to live healthier lives. None of those things are necessarily bad things. But both of these reasons I want you to see, I think, are grounded in a fear of death. Many of us are afraid to die. And yet we can't escape the reality that death will come for us. But because we either ignore it or we obsess over it, few of us are rarely prepared for it. We haven't taken the time to put those puzzle pieces together and think through that question of what happens when I die. Now, in the first week of the series, we, made this, we looked at this statement from Dr. Vodibachum. He said this, we behave in accordance with what we believe. We behave in accordance with what we believe. And what I want you to see today is, is this, that what you believe about destiny... What you believe about what happens in the life after death significantly impacts how you live today. And I'm going to illustrate it this way. Francis Chan uses this illustration. He uses the illustration of a rope. So I, I actually ran out, made sure I got a good rope to show you. And uh, what, what he says is this. He says, this rope, just imagine this rope is super long. Now, I know it ends outside the door. If you're just wondering, it's not that long. But just imagine it keeps going on and on and on and on. This rope is super long. In fact, it wraps around the world multiple times. And, and then secondly, what you need to do is picture this rope as a timeline of your life. Okay? And this little blue part right here is the time that you get here on earth. So this is the 50, 60, 70... A hundred years, if you're really super fortunate, you get here on this earth, and the rest of this rope is what goes on into eternity. That's your life after death. Now, of course, for this to make sense, you have to, you have to believe that there is a life after death, but let's just assume for a second that there is. Why would you focus all your decisions on this one little piece right here, this little blue part, when your life continues to go on and on and on and on and on and on and on into eternity? But that's what we do, right? We start to think, well, if I just save enough for retirement, then, then I'm going to be safe and help, you know. So we, we make all these decisions based on this little, little blue part, and we don't take into consideration the life after death. We don't consider how the decisions we make now will affect, in, will last into eternity. John Piper famously said this. He said, life is short, eternity is long. Live like it. We should behave in accordance 
with what we believe. And so the question today is, what do you believe about life after death? If you believe that there's nothing after you die, that there's no, no more of this rope, your life is just this, this little, little blue part right here, um, well, that's going to affect how you live today. You know, if, if you believe that there is life after death, well, that should also change the way that you live, live today. This is the destiny question. What happens when I die? And if you want to properly answer that question, you have to, I, I think, explore at least, at least three steps. And what I'm going to call today, the, the three steps are this. You have to first expose the lies you have to embrace the truth, and then you have to engage, once you embrace those things, engage with urgency. So expose the lies, embrace the truth, engage with urgency. Let me pray for us, and then we're going we're to dive in and look at some scripture today. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your, for your love, for your grace. Thank you for Jesus, who died on the cross for us. Uh, Lord, I pray today that you would stir up our hearts, Lord, that we would start living for eternity, that even if we're here today and we haven't thought about eternity, may we start thinking about that today, Lord. May you change our minds, may you change our hearts, may you move us closer to you, Lord Jesus. And if we don't have a relationship with you, maybe that would even begin today. We pray all that in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, so first, we have to expose the lies. And (laughs) listen, if eternity is hanging in the balance... If it's possible that, that this life is not just this little blue part, this little blip on this eternal timeline of your life, wouldn't you want to know the truth about what happens after you die? Because the reality is there's a whole lot of false stories out there about the afterlife. I mean, wasn't it John Lennon who sang that famous song, Imagine There's No Heaven, It's Easy If You Try? Is it really that easy? Over the course of this series, We have been looking at sections of the book of Colossians, and each week we've been reminded of Paul's warning to the Colossian Christians in chapter 2, verse 8, where he said this, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. So if if you want to know the truth about the afterlife, uh, would you not want to go to the only one who has been there and who has been back, (laughs) right? Earlier in Paul's letter, we get this this idea of the afterlife coming up, of life continuing beyond death into the future. If you look back in chapter 1, he is talking about the former state we had before God changed us based on what Christ did on the cross. And then he starts to talk about the implications for our future lives. Look at what he says in chapter 1, verse 21. So he's just talked about the preeminence of Christ, how he was uh, superior over all things. And then he says this. He says, and you, speaking to Christians were once alienated and hostile in mind, and you were doing evil deeds. Now, verse 21, as I said, describes the Colossians' former or pre-Christ condition. He reminds them of who they were. And then he has a laser, I want you to laser focus in on those two words, alienated and hostile. What Paul is saying is that the Colossian Christians were once outside the realm of God's blessing. They were his enemies, And that's a common theme in Paul's writings. Now, if you put that in context uh, for our topic today, I would suggest that before they knew Christ, these Colossians were not thinking, were not considering any kind of future forever life. They were living for today. They were living like pagans. And if you look at that last clause, doing evil deeds, notice that there was a, a, there was a, you know, a consequence for them not thinking about that. Since they didn't know God, they didn't live for him, and it seriously affected the way that they lived their lives. And then you get to verse 23, and it says, or verse 22 says this, 
It says, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now, verse 22 speaks about their present condition before God. They are now reconciled once you know Christ or brought into a right relationship with God by the blood of our Savior's sacrifice. And if you look at that second clause, then he says, he has done this in order to present you holy and blameless. Now, the term theologians use for this type of language is eschatological. Now, that's a long, that's a 50-cent word that means it's talking about the doctrine of the last things, both personally and cosmically. In other words, Paul is talking here about the future, the end of time after Jesus Christ returns on the clouds. He's talking here about life after death. And what does he say? He says, because of the sacrifice Jesus made, um, you are now right before the Father. You will be holy and blameless. You will be able to enter into his eternal kingdom. And then verse 23 concludes this way. He says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now what's he saying? He's saying the reality of our future lives are evidenced by the way we live in the present. So you should behave in accordance with what you believe. In verse 22, he said, you're going to stand before God, holy and blameless. And then in verse 23, he adds this condition, if you continue in the faith. In other words, you are living for eternity right now. What you believe about what happens after death changes the way you live today. That is the Christian story view. And we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. But before we do that, I want to contrast it with some other views. And I would remind you again, don't, don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies or high-sounding nonsense, because there's a lot of empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense out there today. And I want to address three popular, what I'll call lies about destiny that can influence your worldview. The first two, I think, are just prevalent in our culture, and the third one is particularly infiltrated the church. So the first one I want to get at is the idea of reincarnation. That's the first lie. This philosophy tells us that our souls can be reborn into another human or non-human body. Like after you die, you can come back as a, as a dog or, a, or you know, whatever. Um, so this is the reality story that, that is enticing for a lot of people, but it's dangerous. In terms of life impact, this, the message of this philosophy essentially is this. No matter what, I'll get a second chance. No matter what, I'll get a second chance. Even if I live a horrible life as a human being, perhaps I can atone for my sins in the next, in the next life, whatever I come back as. Now, the philosophy of reincarnation falls under the larger worldview category of transcendentalism. And this worldview, has, it's hard to pin down because it has many different and sometimes competing features. For example, uh, pantheism can fall under this, this category, where we believe that people believe that God is in everywhere, it's in everything. God's in that, in that chair that you're sitting on right there, or, or in the tree outside. There's a big force in the universe. Or it could be a, a, a polytheistic view could fall under this, believing that there's multiple gods in the world, like there's a God that governs, governs the weather or that governs that car that you drive. Um, that's a polytheistic view. The New Age movement falls under this worldview, as well as Buddhism and Hinduism, even Scientology, and even the writing of Ralph Waldo Emerson. They, they put forth some kind of transcendentalistic view of the world. C.S. Lewis called this the life force 
philosophy. Because in this worldview, the universe and God, they're inseparable. Human beings are just an extension of this divine oneness. And this is also why reincarnation is a, is a key feature, because uh, with each death and rebirth, we're always journeying back to this one life force. That's why people talk about that idea of karma, that you, what goes around comes around. That's, that, is, that is part of this philosophy. And it's the philosophy that undergirds popular movies like Star Wars. And it's even part of the Matrix and a lot of science fiction and fantasy movies. How many movies incorporate past lives or ghosts in their storyline? So again, you see that idea of rebirth and reincarnation that can, that can lead you to believe that you're going to get this second chance which drastically changes the way you live today. Now, aside from that, there are significant problems with reincarnation as an idea. For example, if everyone in this room has had a past life, why don't you remember them? Do past lives pick and choose when to reveal themselves in our minds? Or, or second, there really is no way to prove reincarnation. So if you contrast that with the Christian story, which sits on a mountain of historical evidence, you can see there, there's a clash here. Now, the second lie out there is what I'm simply going to call the lie of annihilation. And that's different from what some Christians hold to. Some Christians take an annihilationist view in relation with hell. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about secular annihilationists who simply think that everybody in this room, if you're at home, if you're listening to this, the, every, the annihilationists think everybody, once you die, that's it. You're done. And that's a key feature of the materialistic worldview, which basically says, like I, like I mentioned, once we die, there's nothing. And so as such, the implicit message of this worldview is that in life after death, there's no consequences. There's no consequences. If there, and if there's no consequences after death, I, again, I wonder how that changes how you live today. Well, you might say, well, I want to live in such a way that I live a better world for my children. That, that could be a positive you know, thing you want to do, or you may live a very selfish life. I'll give you an example. Um, I read this week an article about 12 American multimillionaires, 12 American multimillionaires who are actually looking forward to their lives beyond death. Why? Because they're confident in the continued progress of modern medicine and science that they've arranged for their bodies to be frozen after they died. And these people who are freezing their bodies actually also set up what they, what they call personal revival trusts, which are designed, so you, you money people out there, you know, you, you can do the compound interest here. They're designed to ensure their present wealth will be waiting for them when they're, they're resuscitated in 100 or 200 years. If they get 10% on that money, how much is it going to be? David Pizer is one of these guys. He's 64 years old, and he figured that the $10 million he leaves to himself now well, after all that compound interest is set in, he's just going to be the richest man in the world when he wakes up, they figure out how to solve his medical problems, and he's going to go on. So basically, it's only the rich that get to live extra long lives. Talk about income inequality, right? <laughs> However, there is nothing, if there is nothing after death, I do wonder why you would not try to prolong life, right? That's a natural outgrowth of that worldview, but, but what I want to pose is a better question. I want to ask, if there is nothing after death, what is the purpose of life? I mean, wouldn't life naturally be meaningless? I mean, I suppose you could try to leave a better world for your children, but, but eventually in this worldview, they're going to die. The universe is at some point going to implode on itself in this view. 
Or, or, and this is the question that really gets me. If you, if you believe there's nothing after death, if there's no consequences, why would I, why would I be motivated to live any kind of moral life? Right? Why would I not simply live for pleasure and, and take no account in how I treat people? Why would I not do that if there's no consequences? I think the very fact that we are still compelled to live moral lives is evidence that the annihilation view is wrong. Many people who hold this view actually are living contradictions. Now, of course, if you hold on to the Christian worldview, you believe those first two examples are, are not right. There is a life after death, this rope that I, I showed you that continues into eternity, but there, there's also a deceptive philosophy that I think has infiltrated the Christian church, and it's not unlike the danger the Colossians were facing. Back in 2005, sociologist Christian Smith coined the term, and you've probably heard this before, moralistic therapeutic deism. And this was based on extensive research on millennial teenagers at the time. Among those who claimed to be Christians, what they found is that they didn't really hold very many Christian views. So the tenets of this worldview they found, and this was the dominant religion in America, is what they found. These are the tenets. Uh, people who hold this knowingly or unknowingly, would say, well, God exists and he just ordered the world, right? That's the deistic view. Secondly, well, what God wants is God wants us just to be nice, right? Be nice, good, be fair to each other, behave. Thirdly, the central goal of life is to be happy and feel good about oneself. Now, that's everywhere, right? That's the goal of life, just be happy. Fourth, God only needs to be involved in your life to solve a problem, Right? If everything's going well, God doesn't really care. He's just kind of up there in the sky having a good time. Fifth, and this is most germane to our topic today, good people go to heaven when they die. This view has bought into the lie that theologians call works righteousness. In other words, if I work hard, if I strive to be better, if I just obey the law as much as possible, I can save myself. In other words, just be moral. But that's not the gospel. If you have a struggle, this view says, get therapy. Not that therapy is a bad thing, but it can't save you. And God created the world, but he's not really involved in my life. It's moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, of course, for our purposes today, as I said, that last point, good people go to heaven, has implications for the afterlife. These Christians seem to miss what Paul said in Colossians 1.21. You are God's enemy until you are reconciled by believing in Christ's sacrificial atonement, not simply by being a good person. And if you believe you only need to be a good person to get into heaven, you're being deceived. And yet this can lead to an overly focused uh, life on the here and now. The blue part of the rope, all we're doing is just focusing on right here and now. This is what this can ultimately lead to. Now, let me give you an example. I, I actually was looking up and I found, I, I, I discovered this new app this week that you can download on your phone. Because believe it or not, there's a large number of people who have chosen to be reminded five times a day via this smartphone app that they are going to die. The app, if you want to download it, it's called We Croak. I'm not kidding. It's, it's a real thing. You, there is more than, it has more than 10,000 downloads. There's 30,000 monthly users. There's more than 25 million reminders that are sent annually. And most of the messages that are sent just simply say, don't forget, you're going to die. Others are equally somber, right? You can get a message like, the grave has no sunny corners. Those who are afraid of death will carry it on their shoulders. That's just what I want to hear every morning when I wake up. Now, the messages are sent at random times 
because it's to remind you that death can come at any moment, which I guess is a good reminder. The founders of the app were inspired by this famous Bhutanese folk saying, which asserts to be a truly happy person, one must contemplate death five times daily. And again, the basic idea is that the more we're reminded about the inevitability of death, the more we will smell the flowers and appreciate every moment of life. Now, I am not against living in the moment. I'm not against being present. But there is much more than the present. There is eternity. So before we leave this section, let me just, let me just bring you back to the rope and contrast these, these different views. Because the Christian view of life after death says that life will continue into eternity. The rope is really super long. It doesn't end. It doesn't end. So why would you focus on this one little blue part right here of this endlessly long rope? Now, our first slide, reincarnation, would say, you know, life continues beyond this, you know, this, this, uh, you know, beyond this blue part. Maybe it doesn't go on into eternity, but it's cyclical, right? So you keep getting reincarnated, and you get reincarnated, and you get reincarnated, right? And I would just say, if you believe in reincarnation, or you know somebody who believes in reincarnation, well, eventually, this is going to cause some knots, right? When, when I put this thing in loops, eventually it knots up. Now, if you believe in annihilation, you believe that you're going to die and you don't think the rope is that long. All that there is is this little blue part. Well, I just want to ask, and maybe you want to ask somebody else, well, what if it's not, right? What, what if it doesn't end right here and it just keeps going on here? And what if you're wrong? Now, if you believe in, in moralistic therapeutic deism and you believe that goodness is going to save you after death, well, you believe the rope continues to go on here, but, but what if that goodness doesn't save you? What if you need more than that? What if you need someone else to save you? This is the destiny question, and it has implications not only for eternity, but for how you live life now. So you have to expose the lies. That's point number one. The ramifications are too large. Then you have to embrace the truth. That's point two, embrace the truth, because in the Christian story of reality, end-of-life questions have both cosmic and personal elements to them. For example, the cosmic dimension deals with how the world will end, which, of course, has a huge bearing on what happens to us as individuals at the end of time. The Christian story of reality points to a bigger, a grander narrative in which history is moving toward a great climax when death and evil will be defeated, when Jesus will triumph and he will make all things new. The Christian story offers, I think, at least three compelling truths about life after death that should impact the way we live today. And the first one is this. The Christian story is about resurrection. The Christian story is about resurrection. The Christian story tells us that even though we die, one day we'll come back to life, and that includes Christians and non-Christians. At the resurrection, we will stand before Jesus. Now, while Paul does not outline this in Colossians, he does address the topic in his first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 15. Paul writes this. He says, I tell you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now, this passage is speaking about what will happen at the second coming of Christ. 
even after death, after we have shuffled off this mortal coil, as Shakespeare put it, we will come back to life with new bodies, right? And some of you out there are saying, yes, amen, I need a new body, I'm tired of this one, get rid of it. See, if you're a Christian, this is speaking about your new forever body of which Jesus Christ was the first fruits. And this is the great hope of the Christian story. Death is not the end. C.S. Lewis famously voiced it this way in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when Aslan, the great lion, came back to life after he was dead. He writes, death was turned backwards. Right? Or J.R.R. Tolkien said this about the resurrection. At the resurrection, everything sad is going to become untrue because the resurrection means new forever life in a new heavens, a new earth. Death is defeated. And even if you're not a Christian, man, I think, I think this desire is written on our hearts Because we're all trying to make sense of this problem of death. How does that fit into my worldview? Let me give you an example. Um, There was an article written by a guy named Adam Gallner, and he details the efforts to remedy the problem of death some people are taking. So at the cutting edge of this effort, we find some of the world's richest people. Uh, Gallner writes, there's something about amassing more money than you can ever possibly use that naturally makes you hungry for ways to stay alive longer, if not forever. So if you get a bunch of money, you want to stay alive long enough to use it. Now, the example he gives here is Larry Ellison, who's the CEO of Oracle. He's the sixth richest person in the world. And Ellison, in fact, has contributed more than $40 million to this cause. It's it's said that he views death as just another corporate opponent to outfox. Ellison has set up a foundation dedicated to ending mortality, or at least understanding lifespan development processes and age-related diseases and disabilities. Some of that's not a bad thing. But this is what he says about death. He says, death makes me very angry. Death makes me very angry. It doesn't make any sense to me. Death has never made any sense to me. How can a person just be there and then just vanish? Just, Just not be there. I don't get it, he says. And I want you to hear what he said here, right? Death made him angry. It doesn't make any sense. And and I would ask him, if he was here, I would say, why does it make you angry, Larry? Is it perhaps that deep inside your heart, you know that death is unnatural? It's a result of this fallen, sinful state of affairs we find ourselves in. Is it perhaps because you know, Larry, that you were made for another world? Because his anger and ours is an echo of the Christian story. And then Adam Gallner, the author of the article, concludes, he says, well, death may not make any sense, but perhaps it can be defeated through these corporate efforts. Death makes us angry. Can it be defeated? Paul writes this. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, that is the good news of the Christian story. It's that we don't just vanish. We're resurrected. Death is defeated. Hallelujah, amen. Now, the second compelling reason for the Christian story is the Christian story achieves perfect justice. The Christian story achieves perfect justice. Justice, And this is a sobering truth for both Christians, and if you're not a Christian, you have to come to grips with this. 
The Apostle John writes this in the book of Revelation about the future end of time. This is the picture he paints. He says, And I saw a great white throne, and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Now, now notice, this is an amazing and frightening picture of the future, where Jesus, the great judge, is sitting on his throne, and all of us will come before him. Creation flees his presence because of his amazing, glorious power. But if you look at verse 12, what does it say? It says, the dead, both great and small, stood before God's throne. That means everyone. We will stand before Jesus for judgment based on what we did in this life. And that is why the Christian story achieves perfect justice. Because nothing escapes the notice of God. Nothing escapes the notice of God. And even if you feel like justice was not served in this life because something somebody did to you, it will be at the judgment seat of Christ. He will put all things right So again, if I come back to the rope, and you're thinking about eternity here, if you believe the Christian story of reality, you have to believe that how you live in this blue part, well, that matters, right? Because one day, you're going to come before Jesus, and what are you going to say? If you don't believe in that reality, that you will come before Jesus, well, and you you haven't placed your trust in him because that matters in this life, well, John has sobering words for us. uh, Revelation 20, 15 says, anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. In other words, if you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, his blood does not cover you. All our deeds, all our sins, all our secrets will be revealed at the end of time and justice will be served. But the good news of the Christian story is that it offers perfect mercy. So it achieves perfect justice, but it offers perfect mercy. And too many of us are trusting in things that cannot save us. Too many of us are ignoring the reality that we will all die. Others of us are obsessing about death, thinking we can postpone death forever. What happens when we die? We will come before the judgment seat of Christ, and all we can do is plead the blood of Jesus and ask his mercy. And that's why Paul implored the Colossian Christians to remember Christ, his crucifixion, and resurrection. Colossians 2.13, he says, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins. He canceled the record of charges against us. He took it away by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual Rulers and authorities, he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. See, perfect mercy can be offered because perfect justice was achieved on the cross. Jesus Christ took on the wrath of God. He satisfied the just penalty for our sin. He stood in our place. We were dead. He made us alive. We were condemned. He purchased forgiveness for us. We were drowning in sin debt. He canceled it. He paid that debt. It took away 
And he's, he, he took it away and he stands victorious over the wicked spiritual rulers and authorities. They are the ones being shamed. That is the gospel. What happens after you die? If you're a Christian, the mercy of God will cover you and you will enter into his forever kingdom in the new heavens and new earth. There will be no reincarnation. You will be you. There will be no annihilation. Life will continue. You are not good enough, but Jesus is. So place your trust in him. That is your true destiny. So when you look at this rope, again, don't just look at this little blue part. You have to live for eternity. Don't be so focused on the decisions that that affect the here and now. Make decisions with eternity in view. Because you never know. Listen, you never know when the end will come. Never know. Could be today. I don't know. So let me wrap up with one final point. Because once you expose the lies, once you embrace the truth, now you need to engage with urgency. Engage with urgency. And if you're here today, or you're listening now, or you're listening later on, and you're not a Christian, uh, the destiny question is something you have to wrestle with, with urgency. Don't wait. You will never know when this life will end. And what happens when you die? Well, I mean, you can choose to believe you're going to be reincarnated. Uh, You can choose to believe that it's all just going to end. But again, as I asked before, what if it doesn't? What if it doesn't? What if there's more? What if you will come before Jesus one day? What will you say? If life continues far beyond these 50, 60, 90 years you've been given, I invite you, in fact, I challenge you right now, whether you believe in Jesus or not, I challenge you to just pray to him and say, Jesus, would you reveal yourself to me? Show me the scriptures that talk about you. He can do that supernaturally, right? The Bible says that when you believe on him, you will be saved both now and for eternity. Now, if you are a Christian here today, a couple of challenges for, for you. I want to challenge you in two ways. First, I want you to ask yourself, am I living for eternity? Or am I living a selfish life for the here and now? Am I focusing on this, this short little blue piece when there's so much more to my life? It just gonna, it's just going to keep going on and on and on. So how do you do that? Well, we talked about some rich people before. Let me just, let me just use money as an example, right? So if, if you are spending all of your money right now just on the pleasures of the here and now, and not that that's always bad, but if, if, you're, if you're spending so much money on the here and now just to make your life more comfortable, instead of investing a certain amount of money in, into, into eternity efforts like missions or things like that, what good does it do, right? As the old play, the Kaufman play said, uh, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Consider how much longer this rope goes. Now, second, if, if you want to live for eternity and make an impact, really make an impact in somebody's life, I would, I would challenge you to pray right now that God would reveal to you a person you need to speak with, somebody who doesn't know Jesus, and talk to them about this destiny question. Ask God to open up an opportunity for a conversation that will echo into eternity. Now, I know, listen, I know that can be intimidating. It can be really intimidating. So what I'm suggesting is that you ask God to prompt somebody else to come and talk to you about what you believe. Because then you'll know, hey, God really, God really set this up. i got to say something. And believe me, if you pray that, God's going to bring somebody. And when, when they come, I would say remember these three steps. The first one I would say is you got to speak winsomely. Speak 
winsomely. In other words, don't be judgmental or condescending. Speak attractively. Tell them about the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. Tell that person you know about the gospel, how they can be saved, and do it with care and concern and passion. Don't be that bullhorn guy in Times Square. Be the person who listens and loves. Because listen, Paul knew this. Paul knew this. In fact, at the end of the letter of the Colossians, this is what he says to them. He says, you need to walk with wisdom with outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When they come, you got to pray for spirit sensitivity. Pray for spirit sensitivity. Because, listen, as I said, speaking to people about life after death, that is scary. And it's intimidating. And relationships could be affected. But pray that that person would bring up the subject, yes, but also pray that you would have the sensitivity to the Spirit to know their needs and their life situations so that you can speak profoundly into their life because there's a reason God puts certain people in your life. And then finally, and this may be the most important one, finally, you gotta, you got to pray for humble audacity. you got to pray for humble audacity because what the world needs is less arrogant, judgmental Christians The world needs humble, grace-changed Christians who have a heart for people and who are audacious about the message of Jesus Christ. I know it is scary to talk about the destiny question, but don't let that fear consume you. Humbly pray for the audacity to speak the truth in love to those you care about. In fact, the letter to Jude, verse 3, speaks and encourages us about this very concept. It says, Beloved, That's Christians, right? Although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation, right, about what we believe, I I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, you may know that word contend, that's the Greek word apologia, which is where we get our English word apologetics from. So before we leave today, I want to just give you two practical tools to live out this humble audacity in your life. First, I want to remind you, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, but we're doing a community outreach survey currently, and we're trying to gather data on how we can serve and love our community better. So what we said a few weeks ago when we introduced this was we're looking for 25 NBC people to ask five friends who don't go to church to fill out this survey, and we're just going to tell them we want to love our community, we want to know how to, how to love you better. So could you just take five minutes to fill this out? And I was really encouraged last week when somebody told me nine of their friends were going to fill this out. So that's awesome. We need more. You know, take the challenge, go talk to somebody, use it as a conversational tool. Second, this fall we're going to offer a class on how to discuss your Christian convictions and the gospel with people who don't have a biblical worldview. The class is called Tactics. It's going to be a six-week, it's not forever, six-week video-based online discussion course that actually I'm going to be leading um, it's going to be on, not going to be on Sunday, it's going to be on Monday evenings. Um, our first meeting is going to be September 20th at 7 p.m. And so if you're interested in, in growing in this area, I would encourage you to go to our website right now. The web, the web page is up. You can sign up right now. Uh, it's going to be a wonderfully encouraging time. Um, I hope you can join us. And as we finish part one of this series, with those things in mind, I would just encourage you to act. Don't just sit here and soak up knowledge. Pursue conversations with people out of love. Help people see the Christian story of reality 
and that it's so much better than the other narratives out there. Well, in fact, we're going to continue this conversation next week as we begin our movie portion of the series. Last year, you may have seen, there was a popular Disney movie called Soul <laughs> uh, that presented a very specific picture of the afterlife. It's a kid's movie, but we're going to break down the worldview message implications in this movie next week, so I hope you can join us and bring a friend. It's going to be a fun time. Before we get there, let me finish up today by coming back to James Lipton, the atheist who always concluded his popular TV show with this question. If heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you arrive at the pearly gates? I'm going to invite the worship team to come on stage for one final song. And as they come, I would just pose the question again, why would an atheist ask this question? Because there is an echo of the true story in all of our hearts. Whether it's James Lipton whether it's the person in the office next to you, whether it's that family member who only visits at Thanksgiving or that neighbor you see jogging in front of your house, all of them have asked the question, what happens when I die? But I'm not sure all of them have taken it seriously. And what makes me sad is that while James Lipton asked this great question, he didn't think about the rope he never came to grips with the fact that the rope is not just this blue part, it continues on into eternity. He only focused on the blue part and he missed the bigger point. And James Lipton, this inquisitive host, well, he died last year, March 2nd, 2020, right before this whole pandemic thing started. And even though he did not believe in Jesus, he met him. However, I don't think he gave James Lipton the answer he was looking for in that CNN interview nine years ago. And in fact, this pandemic has caused many people to confront this question of destiny. And my hope and prayer is that all of us would be there when people come to us to help them expose the lies, to embrace the truth, and to engage with urgency. And as we do that, we can help people change the course of their eternal destiny. All of us will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you know Jesus, that's going to be a great day. If you've placed your trust in him, it'll be a wonderful day because he's going to call our name. We're going to stand up and he's going to embrace us with his forgiving love and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen? That's good news. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for each of my friends that are here. For those that are listening now, for those that might be listening later on, Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, if there's anybody out there that does not know you, Lord, even today, that they would come, talk to me after the service, talk to somebody they know who knows you, Lord. May they place their faith in you. May this message, Holy Spirit, have stirred up people's hearts. And for the Christians that are here today, Lord God, I pray that you would stir on our hearts, Lord. Give us that humble audacity. That, that Jude talks about. Help us to, to know how to speak. Help us to have boldness, Lord God, in a world even that is hostile toward us. Because we want to live for eternity, Lord. We know that the blue part is not the end. It continues. We're excited to be with you. Help us to always keep that in view. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.